Hello and welcome to the seventh episode in ICOCA's podcast series, Future Security Trends, Implications for Human Rights. I'm Chris Galvin and I'm joined today by Dr. Christopher Kinsey, who is reader at King's College London and spent the last 20 years researching and writing on the subject of private security. I'll be talking to Dr. Kinsey on the subject of accountability in the private security sector, past, present and future. So, Dr. Kinsey, could you tell us about how the private security industry has changed over the last couple of decades, particularly the companies operating in complex environments? Yes, I mean, I suppose the um, the biggest change over the last 20 years is that the industry has grown in size, significant size, I, I would argue, particularly since the end of the, the Cold War. The industry is also diversified. So it's not just about providing security to individuals. They also provide, for instance, anti-piracy activity um, security, which is something new that, that has only happened in the last 10, 12 years. The industry has also professionalized itself. This was not so much in the 1990s, but certainly I would say since the the second Gulf War, the industry has recognised the need to be much more professional in how it approaches um, security. So, for instance, there are courses now that you can take um, before you actually go into the industry uh, to ensure that you're of a suitable competency. Um, this was never the case back in the, the 70s and 80s when the industry was dominated by the circuit. Back then, it was really uh, experience and uh, special forces operations that counted more than, uh, than professionalization and, and standards. And the client base has also expanded. So it's not just about commercial security today, providing security to industry, working in complex environments. It's also about providing security to NGOs and government departments. So I would argue that um, in all those areas, not only have we seen change, we've seen significant growth as well. So can you tell us what's driving the growth of armed security? Basically, it's uh, increased uh, international instability. McFate, uh, Sean McFate refers to this as durable disorder, and it's leading to more fragile, failing and failed states. And when you have a fragile, failed state, you still require these states are still functioning. Uh, and many of the actors working within these states require security and armed security. You talk about uh, complex environments. The complex environments that uh, private security are concerned with are often found within these types of states. Um, and of course, again, with increased um, instability, political instability, you have increased uh, often criminality. And again, uh, that drives it. So political instability leads to warlordism, it leads to increased uh, criminality. And, and as a consequence of that, you know, actors, multinational corporations, governments, NGOs require security, often armed security, the type that private security provides. Now, those environments that you describe can be uh, complex indeed, especially when it comes to the issue of accountability. So can you tell us how has corporate accountability in the private security sector changed over the last few decades? 
And how does the accountability of clients as the consumers of private security fit into this? Well, first of all, there's a far better understanding about uh, accountability and particularly corporate social responsibility and what this means in the context of the industry. So, so what are the industry's concerns when operating in a fragile state? The issues of human rights, for instance, and how to go about um, ensuring that you don't undermine not only people's uh, human rights but uh, but political rights um, and, and so forth so there's a better understanding from the industry about their requirements what they're required to do in terms of accountability in terms of corporate social responsibility companies realize they need to act socially and ethically in a responsible way towards local communities for example not to do so, of course, may affect their operation, but they have, uh, they have a moral responsibility, they have an ethical responsibility to ensure that their staff conduct themselves uh, properly. Companies now produce, for instance, policy documents uh, and have done over the last few years that detail what they can and cannot do or what their staff can and cannot do. And their performance can now be measured against these, uh, these policy documents. But the international community and, and organisations like the International Code of Conduct Association also produce documents that, uh, that industry can draw on and in fact have to sign up to, to ensure that they behave in a socially responsible way and they're accountable for their um, their behavior for their their actions clients also have a responsibility here and their responsibility is to ensure that the private security companies they employ abide by the regulations that are out there and I, I can think of your own set of regulations, but there's also Ruggie's UN guiding principles on business and human rights. So there is a whole plethora of um, regulations that uh, companies are now aware of, much more so, and are adhering to. Now, a cynic may say that this is all window shopping. It's all about... Um, business uh, it's all about winning contracts and that of course once companies have a contract then then much of this goes out of the window i would argue otherwise once these policies are embedded in an institution or a, a corporation it actually becomes quite hard for them to ignore them and remember as i just said they can be measured against their own policy documents it's also um, important that the clients uh, employ the right companies. Those are companies that have signed up to um, such regulations, that they have in place uh, robust processes to, to make sure that, you know, this, that their private security providers adhere to international standards set out by these organisations, that they hold their security providers to account if they break such codes and that they are transparent in their employment of private security. Auditing, again, um, this was something that has just come in in the last few years. If you go back to the 1980s, back further 1970s, no one I don't think ever audited a private security company uh, regarding its conduct. But today, of course, that's all part and parcel of the industry. 
and also employing clients should only employ those that are, are committed those private security companies that are committed to high standards and performance so it's not just about getting the, the the best price it's making sure you get the best price with the company that has a proven track record in maintaining high standards well, I suppose most important is about ensuring the welfare of the local communities affected by private security. So making sure that there are in place processes by which local community not only has a say about necessarily private security, its conduct in, within its, its area, but has, has a process where if something does happen, then they can call on external bodies to hold private security and the clients to account in this respect. Now, what are some of the different kind of regulatory models in complex environments where these companies are, are operating? For example, in many African countries, I understand there can be a blurred line between private and public security operations. So what are the challenges in ensuring accountability across a global industry where different regulatory models exist and where for example, concepts of public and private might be different. Okay, this is a very interesting question. You're quite right. There are a plethora of um, local regulations uh, that govern companies in different parts of the world. However, what I would say here is that the the leading documents should be the uh, the ICOC own code of conduct, also of course Ruggie's principles and international humanitarian law and that local documents should actually be embedded within those documents. That's where they should take their lead from. These, what one would say, the universal principles in those documents. So the, the, the challenge I suppose is ensuring that local regulation has embedded within it the principles that are enshrined in the documents I, I've just I've just mentioned. There are different, um, there, as you say, there are different local regulatory uh, mechanisms out there, and that what one is looking at within the local reg regulatory systems is that they take account of they take account of local norms they take account of local traditions but again may also be very important in terms of the local environment so we shouldn't ignore the local environment but i would say what is extremely important here is that the local regulatory uh, regime needs to make sure that within it are those universal principles i've just mentioned and are those, would you count those, uh, is that international law? If not, what role does international law have to play? And what role do you think an international convention might have to play in the future? International law has a significant role to play here. I was actually going to say that one of the, one of the approaches to, to, um, to regulation, or the approach at the moment, has been the... the the top-down approach to regulation. That is that it, it's, we have a set of uh, laws that companies must abide by. And of course, if they don't, then of course the, the legal mechanisms kick in and they're held to account through the courts. Uh, and of course, the enforcement, enforcement agency is the police. Now, the other way of looking at it is from bottom up. And this is where 
the, the, the community itself helps to monitor and ensure the, the proper conduct of, of private security. And the way this can be achieved is through local charities, uh, using local charities or, or NGOs, I should say, to help transmit information up the ladder. So you have a local environment, a local community that's affected by, by the behaviour of the private security company and that if that behaviour doesn't meet uh, the high standards expected then there's a reporting mechanism that the local people can use to ensure that that information gets passed up to for instance um, the police but ultimately to an organisation like yours that can then take the necessary action against the company and certainly if that company is a member of the International Code of Conduct Association. Coming back to your other question about international law, I think international law has a very important part to play. International law is often criticised because it cannot, let's say, prosecute private security companies. Um, and, and I agree, international law is often soft law, and certainly in this area it is soft law, it's very difficult to enforce, but it still has a very important role uh, to play with private security. First of all, it should, it should set the limits on what is acceptable and what is not acceptable in terms of the type of force the market should be able to, uh, to sell and buy. And what I mean by that is that in the case of the International Code of Conduct Association membership, their level of force is often uh, no more than, um, than sidearms or, or, or rifles. But there are, of course, uh, companies that are prepared to offer much more than that. And that's, you know, combat capabilities. And international law should be able to set the limit uh, on, on what permissible and what is not permissible. And if international law, if the international community decides that, uh, that, that companies can engage in combat capabilities, then again, international law needs to play a role in making sure that uh, companies are, are, are monitored and they're held to account for their, um, for their, their actions. So it's not necessarily about banning uh, companies engaging in uh, combat or what I refer to as direct combat support, but it is certainly about making sure that those actions are properly monitored and that individuals and companies are held to account. And the two companies I think of here is Wagner and Blackwater, both, and certainly Wagner is engaged in uh, combat operations, and, and Blackwater is certainly engaged in, uh, I would say, activities beyond what your members would deem as acceptable in this in this way. If that's going to continue, then I think uh, I think these companies in particular need to be closely monitored. And, and again, international law is has a role to play here. Again, international law helps to establish international norms of what is and is not acceptable behaviour. So it may be acceptable to, to provide certain combat capabilities, but it may not be acceptable in other, in other areas um, or other types of combat capabilities. So it might be acceptable to do what, what EO did, which was to directly help a, an army that simply didn't have the ability to defeat uh, a terrorist organization, but it may not be acceptable for, for a private security 
company or a private military company to take over the complete outsourcing of military force. Now, ICOCA's focus is on the latter, on, on private security companies, but I want to focus a little more on, on this issue of private military companies. Now, you wrote a book published in 2006 titled Corporate Soldier and International Security, The Rise of Private Military Companies. And 14 years on, we're seeing increasing use, as you say, especially from the likes of the Wagner Group in different parts of the world that we describe as complex environments. So how is this similar or different from the growth of the private security sector? And are these two distinct industries in your mind? They are distinct in my mind. I spent uh, the last 20, 25 years studying them. So to me, that distinction is crystal clear. However, I think to many people, um, they struggle to understand the nuances between these two groups. And and therefore, uh, they often um, refer to them uh, as simply mercenaries. The, The similarity is that they both operate in complex environments for me. So they, they both operate uh, often uh, in states that have failed or are failing. And of course, um, they, they carry weapons. So that to me is a similarity. However, they are also very, very different. What drives uh, the Wagner group, you could argue, is um, political intrigue. And what I mean by that is that mercenaries have tended to engage in political intrigue. Um, We saw this in the early part of the 19th century, where, of course, mercenaries engaged in um, in political intrigue in South America. This is where they actively engaged with the the local forces to overthrow the, the Spanish Empire. So it's about political change or maintaining the status quo. If we go to the, we fast forward and we go to the, the Cold War, the 1960s and the Congo, we see mercenaries again engaged in political intrigue. That is, this time they don't want to change the political system as they did in South America or helped to do in South America. They want to maintain a political system. And that political system, of course, was colonialism. So that's what mercenaries do. What private security does is provides armed security, of course, often providing armed security in the same conflict zone where you might find mercenaries. But their function is literally to provide armed protection, often to diplomats nowadays uh, or businessmen. And I don't see anything, anything wrong with that. The issue now, of course, is that diplomats, businessmen, NGOs, are now targeted by uh, warring sides simply for the money that they can bring in. Of course, because um, you know, once you you know, a hostage is worth money to them. Not to protect yourself seems um, seems silly to me. However, there are ways of protecting yourself in a hostile environment without using armed security. But our focus is armed security. So they're involved in security. They're not involved in political intrigue. However, there's a grey area. When does providing security actually move across into political intrigue? I.e. your security is now aiding uh, a political group in its quest to either change or maintain the status quo. 
and when does mercerism actually encroach on the security sector you start you no know, mercery start to protect assets that is uh, a classic security function within uh, within a fragile state and of course the other challenge is distinguishing between the two in terms of the people themselves both these groups mercenaries private security that work in complex environments employ former soldiers uh, and that's uh, that's easy to understand obviously they have the uh, they have the skill sets needed obviously to engage in war fighting but uh, security in a war zone is a dangerous activity and you need to be able to use weapons sidearms rifles for instance so both new soldiers and therefore often from an outside perspective looking in yes it looks as if the two groups are the same but there are as i said subtle differences one of the challenges i suppose for the industry is trying to convince the media that actually private security aren't mercenaries uh, often the often the media make matters much harder by referring to both groups under the simple label as mercenary uh, and this to me is all about selling papers but as i've mentioned there are there are differences one activity is is legal and legitimate the other activity is is, is illegal but making the general public aware of these nuances is is extremely difficult and quite frankly i'm not even sure if they're that interested and i'm not even sure the media are that interested in those nuances and and when it comes to the issue of accountability uh, what are the challenges in in holding mercenaries to account and and if that is difficult what's the danger that an unchecked mercenary sector tarnishes the private security sector industry in the future, especially if the media and the general public are conflating the two? Well, you're right. If, an unmerc- if uh, the mercenary sector goes unchecked, it will certainly tarnish the private security sector. How do you hold mercenaries to account? Well, as I've just mentioned, I think there is a role here for international law to set the, the, the norms uh, of what is permissible mercenary activity and what is not. And as I said, an example would be the the type of activity that maybe EO engaged in, in, actually was it Steps engaged in, in northern Nigeria, where it gave combat support, combat training actually, and and support to the Nigerian military. Activity that, that, that wouldn't be acceptable might be taking on the whole role of a state military and privatizing your armed forces. How do you hold mercenaries to account? Well, invariably in the past, of course, what, what you've, uh, you haven't, it's a very dangerous game. Uh, if you get caught, you tend to get shot. And, and certainly that's, that's been the case throughout history. Uh, mercenaries have got caught, uh, has shown no, uh, no mercy, simply executed. Now, mercenaries have been held to account um, and they were held to account um, in Angola after the Angola debacle in 1976. But actually trying to catch them and put them on trial is extremely difficult. And I'm, I think probably the, the only way of doing it is through national legislation. And I'm thinking back now to Simon Mann's operation in, uh, in Africa well, it would have been about 2010 now, 
if you do catch them, then you put them on trial nationally and, and, and deal with it at that level. I'm not sure international law is actually capable of dealing with, with mercenaries in, in this sense. And that uh, what would normally happen, as I said, they would be tried uh, in local courts. But yes, there needs to be a distinction made here to um, differentiate between the, um, the two types of activity. Well, Dr. Kinsey, thank you so much for disentangling these two issues and, and uh, shedding light on the role of, of regulation, both at the national and international levels. Uh, we look forward to uh, your next book, whenever that may be coming out. But thanks for today.